The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 24. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Henrity. We finished last time with a distraught Macduff ringing the alarm bell and trying to wake everyone in the castle with the horrific news that Duncan has been killed. First onto the scene, unsurprisingly, is Lady Macbeth. She hurries in full of the appropriate questions. What's the business that such a hideous trumpet calls to parley the sleepers of the house? Speak! Speak! Obviously, it's her role here to be the concerned hostess, wondering why on earth all this noise is happening so early in the morning. She asks all the right things. What's going on? Why all of this noise waking everyone in her house? But Shakespeare is still weaving his intricate tapestry. We've already heard the lady calling the murder the night's great business and using various euphemisms like this before it actually happened. So this is a little nod here that she uses the same word again. But here it's vague enough to make her seem totally ignorant of what's going on. But it is a nice way to acknowledge that we know what she knows about it all. She doesn't refer to bells, but to a hideous trumpet. Again, Shakespeare is extending the kind of apocalyptic language that Macduff has been using. Any reader of the Book of Revelations would know that a hideous trumpet will sound the end of the world. More interesting yet is her turn of phrase. She doesn't just ask why all this noise is summoning the sleepers of the house. She's wondering why they are being called to parley. Now this is a military image as when two opposing armies might face off and trade words before they trade swords. It's a neat and rather subtle piece of foreshadowing, since in the power vacuum created by the king's death, there will be at very least a conversation as to who might take his place. Macduff seems a little dismissive in his response. He says, "'O gentle lady, tis not for you to hear what I can speak.' The repetition in a woman's ear would murder as it fell. Annoying and a little bit disappointing as it is to hear a man talking down to a woman like this, I think it's more interesting because it allows us to think that Macduff has no suspicions just yet. He can't even bring himself to tell Lady Macbeth what has happened in her house, never mind imagining that she could have had a hand in it. She is a gentle lady, as he puts it, and the repetition of this information in her gentle ear would kill her with shock as it fell into her head. At worst, this is a little bit misogynist. At best, it's making Macduff look like a very poor judge of character, since Lady Macbeth is, as Julius Caesar might have put it, made of sterner stuff. Now Banquo comes in, likewise wondering what is going on. Macduff does little now to shield Lady Macbeth's gentle ears, and he says, Oh, Banquo, Banquo, our royal master's murdered. In performance, perhaps the actor could try to shield this information from Lady Macbeth, but now that she has heard from another source what's going on, Lady Macbeth can respond. She says, Woe, alas, what, in our house? It's a deft move for her to ask first and foremost, what in our house? The question is not really asking if it has happened here, so much as how it can have happened in her castle, in our house. 
It's Banquo that responds. He says, Too cruel anywhere. Dear Duff, I prithee, contradict thyself, and say it is not so. This response is a little less calculated, of course, since it's actually news to Banquo. He leads immediately with denial. Never mind that such a murder could happen here at the Macbeth's castle. It shouldn't happen anywhere. It is too cruel even to think about. And so he's asking, dear Duff, a kind of friendly, even intimate contraction of Macduff's name, to contradict himself and tell them it's not true. But before Macduff can even reaffirm the news, it's Macbeth who now enters, with Lennox. Somehow they also pick up Ross in between the king's chambers and the stage, and in most stage directions he enters with them also. Macbeth, of course, is the one to speak. Had I but died an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed time. For from this instant there's nothing serious in mortality. All is but toys. Renown and grace is dead. The wine of life is drawn, and the mere lees is left this vault to brag of. As in Lady Macbeth's response, our hero is giving a balanced mix of ideas he's already expressed and what is hopefully an appropriate reaction to the murder. Earlier in the play we've heard him talking of eternity and mortality and jumping the life to come. Now he wishes that he had died an hour before this awful event. In that case he would have been blessed. Again Shakespeare makes his words do double duty. Macbeth calls the murder a chance suggesting somehow that it is an accidental or a chance event. But likewise, this is an opportunity. Macbeth has already wondered if chance would have him king, why chance would crown him. Chance again here, not to mention the added thought that our modern reading of chance is, as I said, an opportunity for him. On top of that, Shakespeare reminds us of Lady Macbeth's first speech, wherein she told us that she saw the future in the instant. The word appears only twice in the play, and this second time is surely a deliberate echo. Their future begins in this instant, if they can hold their nerve now. Macbeth speaks in grand poetry, as perhaps befits the death of a beloved king. There's a strange paradox in this speech. If it were uttered by anyone else in this moment, it would be an appropriate, if maybe a little dramatic, response to learning of the king's death. But from Macbeth it's rather more charged, since, of course, we know that he killed the king, and is hoping that by doing so he'll get the crown himself. This language of mortality, of futility, is important, and we'll hear a good deal of comparable things later in the play. But for now, mind you, it is death that has now been undermined. There's nothing serious about dying now, since the worst death imaginable has come upon them. Their king is dead. So all is but toys. Everything now is a bauble, a toy, a useless, trivial little thing. Renown and grace, united as one thing, are likewise dead. And appropriately, after a night of such heavy joyful drinking in a courtyard now perhaps filling up with very hungover and bewildered Scottish nobles, Macbeth makes a drinking analogy. He says that the wine of life has drained away and all that's left in this vault or wine cellar is the dregs. 
the wine of life is drawn, and the mere lees is left this vault to brag of. The good thing about this rather chaotic scene, for the Macbeths at least, is that everything happens so quickly, and as more and more people arrive, things need to be repeated, so there's no time really to question things before more people join them on the scene and also need to be told what has happened. And the more that things are repeated, the faster that they will be accepted as fact. So, next to appear are the king's sons, Malcolm and Donalbane. For once, it's the younger son who gets the line, and so it's Donalbane who asks, What is amiss? With every new arrival asking what's going on, the tension seems to rise. Shakespeare words Donalbane's question carefully. Asking what is amiss allows Macbeth to respond in a way that plays on the young man's words. So he says, You are, and do not know it. The spring, the head, the fountain of your blood is stopped. The very source of it is stopped. Now, this isn't the most helpful or sensitive way to tell a man, two men, that their father has been killed, even if he was the king and that there are other people who also need to hear it. Macbeth is back in his land of expansive, huge language, and he's describing it just a little too grandly. It sounds very unreal, the way that he's suggesting that this spring, this river of royal blood, this hereditary stream of kingliness has been stopped. To make a little sense of this curious image, we have to go back to Thomas More's Utopia, a philosophical book published about 90 years before Macbeth was written. In it, Moore says, From the monarch, as from a never-failing spring, flows a stream of all that is good or evil over the whole nation. This image, rephrased by Macbeth, coupled with a sense that all that was good has now died, is already sounding like an attempt from Macbeth to echo the idea of everything before this chance, as he himself called it, being a kind of utopia now lost. And, don't forget, Shakespeare himself, at the very least, had a hand in revising a play about Thomas More about 15 years earlier. So this is material that he does know. More on that in the show notes. For now, the spring, the head, the fountain of your blood is stopped. The very source of it is stopped. Surely Malcolm and Donalbane are wondering what on earth Macbeth is talking about. By contrast, Macduff is very straight with them. Echoing almost exactly what he said to Banquo, he says, Your royal father's murdered. And this juxtaposition is, of course, important because it's yet another insight into the difference between Macbeth and Macduff. Finally, the conversation will start to move forward now as Malcolm very usefully asks, Oh, by whom? Now that surely everyone knows that the king is dead, the logical next step is to find out who done it. Interestingly, there is no automatic succession in this Scotland. If there were, the announcement would be that the king was dead, and long live the king might be proclaimed and the crown handed to Malcolm. But if this happened, the play would be over. Macbeth gets a very helpful assist from Lennox now. We might have thought that Macbeth would have to make the case for who killed Duncan, but instead it's Lennox who volunteers an answer to Malcolm's question. He says, Those of his chamber, as it seemed, had done it. 
Their hands and faces were all badged with blood. So were their daggers, which unwiped we found upon their pillows. They stared and were distracted. No man's life was to be trusted with them. Conveniently, this implication that Duncan's bodyguards killed him comes from Lennox. He states quite matter-of-factly that it seemed as though those of his chamber had done it. Their hands and faces were smeared or badged with blood, as were their daggers, which they found, as he says, unwiped upon their pillows. This is exactly as Lady Macbeth arranged, and the plan seems to be working. Lennox continues that the men opened their eyes and stared and were distracted. This is not surprising to us, since we know that Lady Macbeth drugged them, so of course they're rather bewildered. But to the assembling company this is disgraceful. Their job was to guard the king, but as Lennox concludes, no man's life was to be trusted with them, least of all his majesty. And of course it's now appearing that not only did they not protect him, but they themselves killed him. And now we get a bit of a shock, because Macbeth chimes in and says, Oh, yet I do repent me of my fury that I did kill them. For reasons best known unto himself, he has killed the guards. Now he blames it on his fury. Seeing the king murdered like this, he just picks up the daggers and stabs them. The line is awkward. The admission is clumsy. And all eagle-eyed audience members do well to watch Lady Macbeth in this instant, since she will now have to respond to this without letting anyone know what she's thinking. And indeed, she'll probably have to recalibrate their plan. Very neatly, Macduff completes Macbeth's line of verse here, quite rightly asking, Wherefore did you so? But... Now that things are heating up and the tension is rising, I will leave you with this little cliffhanger, a second murder, and will save what follows for the next episode. You'll find information on Thomas More and Utopia and maybe revelations in the show notes that accompany this episode. They'll be online at the Macbeth page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for joining me, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>